Amen. Thanks, and Christianity. Hi, everyone. Such a privilege and honor to be with you this morning. My name's Julie, for those of you that I haven't met. I'm just going to sort myself out here. Wow, what a, what a wonderful morning we've had encountering Jesus already. That name, Jesus, it's what we are going to be circling around as a church for the next few years. And um, as Christians, for eternity, Jesus. We've been singing to him this morning, and I was just um, reminded of the power of that name. I wonder if, if you would just say it under your breath, even now. Jesus. I was about 15 and just starting to um, encounter God for myself. I had grown up in a church, um, but I was starting to take my faith seriously. And I had the weirdest experience one evening on my own. I was um, in my room listening to worship music. I was actually in my sister's room um, because she had a CD player. And um, she wasn't there, and I used to try on her clothes when she wasn't there. And I was listening to music. And then I had this uh, feeling of something dragging me down, and it felt quite terrifying. (laughs) Um, And I ended up on the floor because I kind of went with it thinking, is this God, you know? (laughs) Maybe this is God. And it felt very oppressive until it felt like I couldn't breathe. And... um, I was terrified, and I remember thinking, well, if it's God, then if I just say the name Jesus, uh, you know, that'll be cool, and if it's not, that'll help, and I I remember all I could say was Jesus. I couldn't even shout, and then as I did it, this pressure got lighter, and I said it a bit louder, Jesus, and this pressure got lighter, and I shouted, Jesus, and it went, and I was so freaked out by this experience. I thought, God, were you like toying with me there? Was that you or am I possessed? I was 15 and freaked out. I didn't tell anyone in my family. And the next Friday, I was at youth group and there was a visiting um, guy from Joburg. And he pointed me out somewhere in the service and he said, I just see there've been these ankle-biting demons that have been trying to bully you and intimidate you, and all you need to do, and he came right up to me and he said this, is say, Jesus, 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 and they flee. (laughs) And it was such a marker in my life with God because it just put everything into perspective. I saw, oh my gosh, uh, these things that sometimes seem so oppressive Um, are actually ankle-biting compared to Jesus. And I saw that Jesus' name was powerful. At his name, demons flee. And I also obviously uh, realized how real the spiritual realm is. And I think we can forget all of that stuff sometimes. Jesus, won't you make yourself real this morning? Thank you that your name is above all names. Today, we're focusing on one aspect of Jesus— Um, And it's this, that Jesus is the true image of God. 1 Colossians 15 and 19 says this, The Son is the image of the invisible God. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. I'm just going to read that again because it's 
kind of mind-blowing. The sun is the image of the invisible God, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. All his fullness dwell in him. Jesus is the true image of God. Just a bit of context for Colossians. Paul was writing to this church in Colossae, and um, many there had embraced Jesus as one of the ways to spiritual enlightenment. There were many things that they still toyed with uh, in their path to spiritual enlightenment, which um, commentators say included mystical spells, other idols, and they invoked angels. The big idea of the letter, according to one commentary, was this. Christ is all. You need no supplements. If you are in Christ, you've received God's fullness and have everything you need to live fully for him. I wonder if Paul was to write a letter to Cape Town today. My guess is that it would sound quite similar to the letter of Colossians and this part, um, that Jesus is the true image of God. You see, we live in a time and a place where Jesus is welcome, even embraced and admired as a wonderful teacher, an image of God, perhaps even. But the image, the only true image of God, well, let's not, let's not be narrow-minded here, Julie. Surely there are other access points, right, to enlightenment and redemption too, like deep inner work like ever deeper levels of self-awareness, like psychedelic retreats, like angelic encounters, like energy healing, past life revisits, coffee. (laughs) Good coffee. It takes a miracle to see Jesus as he really is and to see everything else in its true light too. And I'm trusting that Something of that would happen with us today. Jesus and Jesus alone is the true image of the invisible God. As I've been uh, preparing for this message, my prayer is that Jesus would be present here today in this room as he was 2,000 years ago in a town called Bethsaida, where he performed a two-stage miracle. I'm going to just read about it now, and I'm praying he does something similar with us. Mark 8, verse 22 to 26. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people, they look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. This is the word of God, friends, and it's living and active. This section describes a strange event. It's a two-stage miracle, and it involves Jesus spitting. (laughs) on someone's eyes and touching him, and that results in only a partial healing until a second touch. Could it be that Jesus' first go just wasn't powerful enough? Or could it be, considering the context of the story, that Jesus, the master teacher that he was, was using this as an enacted parable for his disciples? You see, 
just before this part of the story in Mark 8, Jesus says to his disciples, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. And you know what his disciples say? They go, he's actually telling us, he's basically doing a a side jibe because we didn't bring enough bread. That's what they think. Um, That actually Jesus is kind of passive aggressively, you know, telling them, like slapping them on the wrist. And you know what Jesus says? He says, do you still not understand? Do you not see? And then straight after the story, which we told, uh, he took um, this man that was blind outside of the village. So it was just, just for his disciples. They were the only audience. After that, the next thing he says to them is, who do you say I am? In other words, how do you see me now? Isn't that amazing, hey? One commentary said this, the peculiarity of this episode is not that Jesus heals a blind man, but that it occurs in two stages. After Jesus has applied saliva on the blind man's eyes and laid his hands on him, we would expect the man's sight to be restored right away, but instead it is blurry. So Jesus reapplies his touch, and this time the the man's sight becomes clear. It is unlikely that Jesus has misjudged his powers, so we must look for another explanation. Jesus leads the blind man out of the village, so the disciples are the only witnesses to this miracle, implying it is for their sake. If so, what does Jesus want the disciples, and by extension us, to learn? Perhaps that the man's progressive healing from blindness to blurred vision to clear sight is a reference to our own gradual progress in understanding Jesus' identity, teaching, and mission. In other words, the two-stage healing of the blind man mirrors that of our own progressive understanding, showing that insight into the things of God is progressive and requires divine intervention. Wow. (laughs) Friends, do you see Jesus? (laughs) I think some of us, Uh, might be blind in this room, completely blind, and God has to do that first miracle. But others of us, we might have a blurred, distorted, obscure version of Jesus. And Jesus wants to come and touch you again so that you can see him clearly. I've got five points this morning, and the first is this. Jesus is not our mirror. Voltaire's insight about religious people was made three centuries ago, and it's still as true as ever. He said this, if God has made us in his image, we have returned him the favor. Perhaps it's human nature, but we tend to remake Jesus in our own image. In non-Christian scholarship and general agnostic public opinion, Jesus is an open canvas upon which to project our ideas about God or humanity at its best. For example, in the so-called third quest of the historical Jesus, reconstructionist scholars conclude that Jesus was either a mystic, a sage, a political revolutionary, a philosopher, or a great teacher of alternative spirituality. And in each case, this rediscovered Jesus looks surprisingly like those who are discovering him. Christians do this too. Every year, there's a famous theology professor, and he gives his incoming students a test about what they think Jesus is really like. 
Is he um, emotional? Is he sensitive? Does he get nervous? Is he the life of the party or the introvert? It's a 24-part uh, uh, question survey, and then it's followed by a second set where he changes the wording slightly in which he asks the students questions about their own personalities. And each year, he says the results are remarkably consistent. Everyone thinks Jesus is quite a lot like them. <laughs> I wonder what Jesus looks like to you. When we remake Jesus in our image, we land up with all kinds of Jesus, but it's a Jesus that lacks power. Here are some contemporary reinventions. The therapist Jesus, who helps us cope with life's problems, heals our pasts, tells us how valuable we are, and encourages us to not be so hard on ourselves. The self-help butler Jesus, who lives to serve our felt needs and help us truly live our best lives and fulfill our highest potential. The open-minded Jesus loves everyone all the time, no matter what, except for people who are not as open-minded. <laughs> the conservative Jesus, who hearkens for the good old days, laments society's creeping slide toward the cesspit. The new age Jesus hates religion, churches, priests, doctrine, and would rather have us out in nature, finding the God within while we attend to our breathing. The revolutionary Jesus teaches us to rebel against the status quo, stick it to the man, and blame the system. One author puts it like this. It's no wonder the world doesn't get Jesus, because we spent decades selling a Jesus cast in our own image. We've had the smack, we've had the smack you on the knuckles with a ruler, Jesus. This flat portrait evolved into the get-out-of-hell-free Jesus. And this Jesus has inspired millions to say a prayer to get his forgiveness and then go on living devoid of his presence and power. The buddy Jesus of the 70s was cool like us and hung out in a van down by the river and would never harsh our vibe because he liked rock music and wore blue jeans. In the 80s, we welcomed ATM Jesus. This Jesus is still quite popular today. You can go home and turn on your TV and learn that Jesus wants you to be happy and successful and most of all, rich. One of the most amusing caricatures today is Grammy Award Jesus. Tune in next time. The film or music industry is patting itself on the back for the stuff it produces. It's inevitable. An artist who wins an award for a work celebrating promiscuous sex and wanton violence and filled with obscenity and profanity will then grace the stage and thank their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. One night, Bono, the U2 frontman, came to the podium after a few of these artists had thanked Jesus, and he said something quite wryly. He said, I bet God's looking down now and saying, please, don't thank me for that. <laughs> In much of the church today, we worship a convenient Jesus. We designate him our Lord and Savior, but this phrase tends to serve as merely a label. He's there when we really need him, but a bit out of mind when we're more self-sufficient. But we're not going to settle here today, friends. We want to see the real Jesus and be transformed by what we see. Jared Wilson said, to really know God, one must really know Jesus. There are no two ways about it. Jesus himself said, if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. 
Philip replied, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is not our mirror, but he is a window into who God is, and that's far more wonderful news. <laughs> so many of us spend our lives in these um, prisons of uh, mirrors. Can you imagine being in a little hut on the top of a mountain uh, and all the walls inside are just mirrors? And then one of those walls falls down and you see the landscape and the vista that was surrounding you, but before all you saw was yourself. Can you imagine oh, what a breath of fresh air and liberty that would be? That's what, that's what Jesus does. He's not our mirror. He's a window into who God is. God with skin on. My second point is Jesus is not a means to an end. Two weeks ago in worship, I felt this refrain, um, and I want to echo it again. Jesus is not the means to an end. He is the end. I'm not just talking about um, the rest of life that we sometimes put in front of God, you know, instead of our spiritual life, but I'm speaking about our spiritual lives even. John 5 verse 39 says this, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. Jesus is not a means to understanding the Bible or becoming better at your quiet times or becoming a better Christian. He is the end. This was a revelation to me a few years back, that Jesus wasn't as invested as I was in me getting those things right. Uh, he was invested in me doing, in forming me into the person that would have habits uh, that, that allowed me to be more intimate with him, that allowed me to see him more clearly. He is the end. The end is finding him and finding out that he is all you need. That the deepest longing in your heart ends in him. That the darkest fears in your heart are vanquished only in him. Jesus is the central and defining figure in your spiritual life. His life is revelation. He brings out into the open what we could never have figured out for ourselves, never have guessed in a million years what God is really like. God among us. Isn't it wonderful to realize that Jesus is not only God-like, but that God is Christ-like? When Jesus asked the 12 if they were going to abandon him, Peter answered, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. You are the Holy One of God. And like Peter, I think we all get there eventually, right? Where we've run in so many different directions and in circles and down cul-de-sacs. And then you go, Jesus, where else can I go? <laughs> for eternal life, for real mercy and joy and liberty and life in abundance, where else? Jesus is not the means to an end. He is the end. And he is the image of the invisible God. 
My third point is to see Jesus is to see him right in the middle of things. This is, uh, if, if Jesus is God with skin on, then what kind of God do we see? Well, there's so many things I could say, right? I'm, I'm just picking out three. And this is the first one, that God is right in the middle of things. And I think that's so obvious, and yet it's so surprising. Just pause for a second to think about what Jesus was like. He keeps showing up. He's not born in a palace or cloistered in a monastery or standing up far from the crowds, away from them. He's in the midst of everyday, ordinary people's lives. And to see Jesus is to see a God who steps into our worlds. Even now, he is immediately and directly in touch with us. Isn't that amazing? That he's in our midst, even now. Friends, God is with you. This is his name, Emmanuel. But it's also a fact of who he is. He's not suspended, floating above your life, your messy mess. He's not removed from it. He's in it with you. The mindfulness movement really caught on, I think, because never before have so many of us been so fraught with anxiety and anxiousness and worry and distraction. This um, is true of me. I find it increasingly hard um, uh, as I've grown into being an adult to actually be present and not be distracted by so many things, even, even the good things, you know? When I'm just with my kids, I'm like, oh, can I not be multitasking here and doing something else? Um, and this thought came to me this week as I was reflecting on what difference it might make if we really see Jesus in the middle of things. What if the answer to being more present in our lives is found in realizing who else is present in them? If Jesus is present, then surely I can be too. If the God of the universe is present in this chaotic kitchen moment or boardroom or school, classroom, then surely I can be present too. If Jesus is really here in this moment, then what have I got to be anxious about? If Jesus is all here, then surely I should be too. This reminded me of the story of Mary and Martha and Jesus' diagnosis of what really is going on in Martha's weary, anxious, distracted self. He says to her when she's, you know, coming to her, him and basically wanting to blame her sister, he says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things, but few things are needed. Indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what is best, and it will not be taken from her. I, I was thinking, I wonder what Martha saw when she saw Jesus. A guest? An obligation? Someone to serve? A very important person, certainly. But someone that lengthened her already full to-do list and added to her anxiety. What did Mary see when she looked at Jesus? She saw a savior to savor. And even amidst all the day-to-day -day duties, she saw that he was present, and so she was present 
to. I wonder how this might change our week. What if this week, every time you started to just feel distracted or anxious or overwhelmed, you said this breath prayer, Jesus, thank you that you are here. In your meetings, in your home, in your school, on your campus, hanging out with friends, stuck in traffic, Jesus, thank you that you are here. Jesus is the true image of God, and it turns out he is with us. May we see him more clearly. My second to last point, to see Jesus is to also see mercy. When we see Jesus, we see such an unexpectedly kind kind of God, right? Stephen Shamrock says this, what we see in Christ is so beautiful, it can Make the sad sing for joy and the dead spring to life. In Christ, we exchange darkness for light as we think of God. For he perfectly shows us an unsurpassably desirable God, a kind God who is against all that is wrong, a God who thaws us. If we are to be drawn from jaded, anxious thoughts of God, we need such knowledge of Christ every day. Michael Reeves says it like this. Here then is the revolution for all our dreams, our dark and frightened imaginings of God. There is no God in heaven who is unlike Jesus, for he is God. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father, he says, so God cannot be otherwise. And the theologian T.F. Torrance puts it like this. There is, in fact, no God behind the back of Jesus, no act of God other than the act of Jesus, no God but the God we see and meet in him. Jesus Christ is the open heart of God, the very love and life of God poured out to redeem us, the mighty hand and power of God stretched out to heal and save us. All things are in God's hands, but the hands of God and the hands of Jesus are the same. Let us then be rid of that horrid, sly idea, he says, that behind Jesus, the friend of sinners, there is some more sinister being, one thinner on compassion and grace. To see Jesus is to see mercy made flesh. If Jesus is the true image of God, then he reflects such kindness, such grace and mercy. Now, if you're a seasoned saint, I just want to pause here because I think sometimes we can think, yes, yes, I got that in the first memo. But now I'm a high school Christian or a tertiary graduate Christian, and I don't need so much mercy anymore. I don't need so much of God's help. Um, And one author, I didn't... uh, I've always quoted this person, and I actually don't know who said it. So if you know, please come and tell me afterwards. Uh, I read it somewhere, and he said, um, the seasoned saint should use up grace like a Boeing 747 uses up jet fuel. Dallas Dallas Willard, thank you, from the front row here. Dallas, the seasoned saint should use up grace and mercy like a Boeing 747 uses up jet fuel. Friends, you're not meant to, um, to think of God as getting stingy with handing out mercy and grace as you grow up in him, 
as you're more sanctified. In fact, you should use up more and more of it because you're actually just more and more aware of how much you need it. You don't need less mercy as you mature in Christ. You need more of it. Here's a quick test to find out if you're using up mercy like a Boeing 747 uses up jet fuel. When last did you bask in the fact that God is so merciful to a sinner like yourself? When last did you extend mercy to yourself in the quiet secret place of your own thought life? Do you extend mercy to yourself because it's lavishly being handed out to you and there's so much to go around? And when last did you lavishly extend mercy to others? Again, I'm not talking about what you'd say if you had to fill this out on a non-anonymous form. But in your heart, are you merciful to others? Was your heart hardened? Friends, we need God's mercy and grace like a Boeing 747 needs jet fuel to fly. When we see Jesus more clearly, we see mercy made flesh and we run to it. And it flows to us and it flows through us. And in its wake, our hearts are softened again to God, to ourselves, and to others. And it sloughs off of us the two surprising twin sins of self-righteousness and self-loathing. I wrote that. <laughs> when we see Jesus, we see that God is mercy. May we see him more cl clearly today. And finally, when we see Jesus, we see joy. If you just study Jesus and the way he lived, you see someone so free. He's no respecter of um, confining boxes and limiting cultural beliefs. He talks to women, he touches lepers, he welcomes unruly little kids. He celebrates with people who are far from religion and God and what society would call good. His disciples want him to go this way and he says, no, I'm going that way. He just doesn't seem to feel undue pressure to perform or fit in. It seems that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. To see Jesus is to see unbridled joy and freedom. And I loved this about um, Surprise's visit last week. If you were here, you'll know what I mean. We, we, were, we came with so much anticipation. Here is a man of God um, with maybe a capital M. You know, this guy has um, left in his wake so, uh, so much uh, fruit of ministry. And yet he stood up here with such a lightness, so much joy. He laughed, he told us jokes, and yet there was such a depth to what he left and such a richness uh, to his ministry. Um, and I think sometimes we can take ourselves too seriously. I know I can, especially spiritual matters. But God came to bring life and life in abundance, friends. And like uh, Surprise said, he said, joy is the serious business of heaven. So let's, um, let's remember to stay joyful and light with childlike faith and soft hearts. This is the mark of spiritual maturity. I came across this on Instagram. Um, I follow this guy called Andy Squires. He's a lovely modern-day sage. And he says this. He's kind of writing this as a confessional because he's quite a melancholic creative. 
Don't I love to make an idol out of my melancholy? It takes humility to enter into the joy of the Lord. But I'm not often humble. I resist the work of the Spirit. I get irritated when God, uh, with God when he comes to me, disrupting the brokenness of my inner world. I have devoted so much effort to my defense mechanisms and coping strategies and hopelessness. I have enshrined my woe. But I am a fortunate son, the target of relentless consecrating efforts by his Spirit. His timing is inopportune and his methods are suspect. But who am I to argue with his sanctifying work? God is overwhelming us with his renewal of the world and afternoons of cake and coffee are the future, but they are the present too. My own story, um, my testimony from last week was um, I felt so moved by Surprise's ministry and I felt like he had such an anointing for joy, you know? And I wanted him to pray for me, for more joy in my life. Sometimes I can feel so heavy and burdened by, by life. And I think I've lost a bit of my lightness. And so I was hanging around and then Taryn gave me the eye, like pray for people. And I was like, no, I'm like, I want to get prayed. I ended up praying for people and it was wonderful. And I didn't have time to get prayed for by surprise. I had to take kids somewhere. And I was totally fine with that because I, I do know that God can work through anyone. He doesn't need one person to pray for you if your heart is asking for something. Um, but I must admit, I don't know if I even prayed that, you know, like God, joy. Um, not an hour later, I dropped kids somewhere and I was standing in a Weinberg pharmacy queue this time last week. And it was dreadful, you know, like long queue. And there were three people in front of me finally. We were chatting, two women and me. And then the one in the front said, do you think they've gone on lunch break? Because it went from six pharmacy people uh, to just two. And so I said to her, I'm sorry, uh, probably. This always happens to me when I'm in a queue, you know. And she said, me too. And we kind of smiled, that little smile. And this woman between us turned around and she said, excuse me, but who do you think you are? You're not God. And I smiled and I felt so offended. And she carried on, and she, she said, you know, it took me 50 years to realize this. I used to think, oh, the traffic's bad because typical, I chose the wrong lane. Or um, the weather is bad because I wore a dress today. Or this queue's long. She said, you know, this queue was long when we came here. You're not God. Uh, you're not in control of the weather and the pharmacy's lunch times. Just take that burden off yourself. And she turned around, and I still felt so offended. And I thought to myself, this is the worst kind of Christianity. Like, here I was connecting with this other woman and this woman, she's obviously a Christian and she's so abrupt and unloving. And then as I got in my car, I just, it just, it wouldn't leave me. And I, I thought, what if that was God's ministry to me this morning? <laughs> and it just hung on me. And I thought, what if actually what I need is not a man of God praying a prayer for more joy, but a shift in my mindset about my place in the universe that actually it's not about me and, and I'm not a victim and all these things that happen aren't happening against me. And maybe even in my jokey, self-deprecating way, I'm wearing a cloak of heaviness and despair and not of joy and freedom. And I just sat with that and I thought, wow, God, I didn't see you, but today you came to me in an annoying woman in a Weinberg pharmacy queue. 
May we all have eyes to see him in the most unlikely of messengers. And may we see that he always comes to bring life and life in abundance, joy and freedom, not bondage and heaviness and despair. May we see him more clearly today. So in conclusion, Jesus is the true image of God, friends. He is the true image of God. There is no image like him. He shows us a God that doesn't look like us, thankfully, and he shows us something much better, a God that is kind, a God that is so merciful, a God that is present, a God that is full of joy and life and freedom, a God that is with us. I wonder if we can end by uh, closing our eyes. And if you feel comfortable putting your own hands on your eyes, your closed eyes, relax. I'm not, there's no spit involved. <laughs> I wonder if you can all just say that name one more time, Jesus. Jesus, we need your touch. Some of us for the first time, some of us for the hundredth. Jesus, help us to see you 